Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. At the 2023 Convocation of the Jurisdiction of the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, Bishop Derek Jones hosted several training lectures for our chaplains. Over the next few episodes, we'd like to share these excellent talks with our wider listening audience. And while some of the lectures reference visual material, we believe that you'll still greatly benefit from these audio recordings. Today, we'll hear from Archdeacon Ryan Davis, Director of Accessions for the Jurisdiction, and he will speak on the subject of the historic episcopacy and ordination vows. So I was struck last night with the closing statement um, that Bishop Jones made about the strength that we have as a jurisdiction, as a church, when we are in unity with one another and the things that we can accomplish. And it's a really powerful and true statement, and that is exactly what I want to talk about this morning, is unity, particularly our call to represent our Lord, the Catholic Church, our bishop, and the historic preservation of the episcopacy and upholding our ordination vows. Um, As we have just heard Our ministry isn't our ministry. It belongs to Christ, it belongs to the church, and it belongs to our bishop. And so we want to make sure that we are being faithful to that. But before we jump into the actual subject itself, as the accessions director, um, I've talked to a lot of you, and you may have noticed, but I ask a very particular question when I talk to some of y'all coming in, and I say, what is it that drew you to Anglicanism? It's one of the first questions that I ask, And, and I want to be nuanced here. People give me more than just one reason that is drawing them to Anglicanism. But I look really closely at what the first response is because it says a lot. It either says a lot about their theology and and what's really moving on their heart, or it says what they think we want to hear as part of a job interview, right? And so they're saying the things that they think sound very Anglican. So out of the last 50 people that I've talked to, 58% or 29 of the people say that authority drew them to Anglicanism. Now, that authority can kind of be expressed in two ways. For for some of them, it's the fact that they come from a faith tradition where they were kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. They were the masters of their own faith. They decided week after week and day after day, hey, I want to talk about this, and this is what I want to do, and I want to be creative, and I want to be innovative, and and I want to do this, and, and I think it would be really sexy if we could do this, and then we would draw people to the church And they realized that they really didn't know what was best, that they were struggling. And in that struggle and in that kind of feeling of almost like an imposter, they begin to have personal struggles of their own. And so they wanted somebody that could speak firmly into their life, that would challenge them, that would love them, that would discipline them when needed. And so they wanted a bishop over them. And if they didn't say they wanted a bishop directly, I also included in authority the the draw towards apostolic succession. They wanted to belong to a church that was deeper and more rooted than the traditions that they had come from that were only sometimes 10 to 5 years old. They wanted to belong to a historic faith that would place its hands upon them, that would confirm them and draw them back to the time of the ministry of the apostles. And so one way or another, they were seeking some sort of authority. The second most common answer, uh, liturgy, which was 11 of the people, We've all been, or at least those of y'all who come from a Southern Baptist background like mine, um, 
We've been to places where we were taught that liturgy was a dry and a stagnant thing, that it came from people who really didn't value faith or or deep theology, really didn't have a commitment in the heart to Christ. And for many of us, the first time that we were exposed to liturgy, we found out actually how beautiful it was, that, that these were deep and tried and true statements, that one collect alone could replace often a 45-minute sermon that I have given. Um, and it's powerful. And so as people had experienced liturgy, they were drawn to it. Because the liturgy, it catches our heart and it catechizes us all at the same time. And so they were drawn towards liturgy and something bigger than themselves. They wanted people to be formed by more than the right chord with a reverb pedal saying the right things that would have an emotional response. They wanted something deep and lasting and above them. We also have the response of theology, particularly historic theology. Eight of the 50 people, of the last 50 people I talked to, gave that response. Um, they might mention something about the 39 articles, the prayer book, various things like that. Um, but good, solid things that come from a tradition that is well established, not of their own making. And you particularly, or we particularly, get those answers from individuals that come from schools that really value exegesis or the study of the languages, because as they would dive through the original text and look at the use of language, they would come across words like the episcopacy or the liturgy um, within scripture. And so that would start to form them and they would realize they were Anglican. And then there's the other, um, there's only two others. And generally those are answers like, hey, I started attending this Anglican church and I like it and I think it's cool and I want to do this. Um, So we're not really going to consider those. But the big ones of especially authority and liturgy 80% of the people gave that response. And whether that was their genuine heart posture or whether that's what they thought we wanted to hear, that says something about what Anglicanism represents to the world around us and to ourselves. And so I'm going to come back to this towards the end, but I want you to think about what was it that drew you to Anglicanism if you come from a different faith tradition or if you were born into Anglicanism, what was it that drew you into holy orders? So as we jump into this conversation about the historic preservation of the episcopacy, we got to go back to the Bible and the historic witness of the church. There's going to be a lot of text on your screen. I apologize. I like scripture. Um, So I invite you, if you would like to join me in your own Bibles, to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. We're going to go into the Council of Jerusalem And I have the dates up there, roughly 48 to 50 A.D. for a particular reason. I'm going to keep saying these dates to make a point. So it's Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So we have Christians of the Pharisee tradition that are already starting to shape and guide the direction of the church, and we see a response out of this. 
The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things, know from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So I start here because as Anglicans, we are a conciliar faith. And this is a major pivotal council of the church, the Council of Jerusalem. And what you'll notice here is that there's heavy hitters. There's Paul, there's Peter, the apostles are gathered, the elders are gathered. Martyrs of our faith, heroes of our faith are gathered here. But who ultimately has the ability to make the judgment of what's going to be done but is St. James the Just or St. James the brother of Jesus? And from tradition and history, we understand that St. James is indeed the bishop of Jerusalem. Now, he is working together in unison with the apostles and with the elders and with the entirety of the church, but ultimately, he gets to make the judgment statement, the crineo statement, and make the proclamation of what is going to happen within his, what we would call, diocese. This is not an isolated event. Like I said, this is 48 to 50 A.D., and some roughly 50 years later, we see the writings of St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, and his epistle to the Ephesians. And St. Ignatius has this to say when talking about priests and bishops. I am compelled to urge you to run in harmony together with the will of God, Jesus Christ, our inseparable life, is the visible will of the Father even as the bishops throughout the world have been appointed by the will of Jesus Christ. So then, continue to run in harmony with the will of the bishop. Your honorable and godly priests are in tune with the bishop as the strings of a harp. Through your unity and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. He goes on to say that each of you must be part of this chorus, united in harmony, receiving God's pitch, and singing together with one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father. He will hear you and acknowledge your good deeds to the members of his Son. Continue in the purity of your unity so that you may always rightly enjoy communion with God. We are called to continue in the purity of our unity so that we may always rightly enjoy communion with God. 
While St. Ignatius here is being very poetic, he's not saying something new or original. He's just taking the applications from his his mentor, St. John. St. John has this to say, and then I am done with my wall of text. 17th chapter, starting at the ninth verse. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given given to them." that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So there's a few key points that I want to hit with this. We are called in Christ's high priestly prayer to be united as the Godhead itself is united. We are to be united with one another, and as St. Ignatius would say, to the will of our bishop, as God the Father and God the Son are united with one another. And we are a fractitious people. This is something that is not possible in our sinly nature and in our fleshly nature, but rather this is something that can only happen through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and through focusing on Christ and Christ's glory and his will. We're also told that while we are in the world, we, like Christ, are not to be of the world. And while as Christ is speaking about these things, I I think there's a tendency for us to go to the passions, the the sinful kind of things of the flesh that that draw us away from God and, and that we struggle against daily. And while that is certainly true and those can be applied here, I think something else is happening. We see a lot of talk about unity unity with one another, and unity in such a way that when we are united, the lost world around us through our unity will know that Christ comes to the Father, not through our words, but through our unity with one another. 
It is my belief that the worldliness that Christ is talking about here is our divisiveness. Our desire to seek ourselves first. What looks best for us? What do we want? But Christ is calling us to do something very different, something he himself modeled. And as I said earlier, our unity with one another leads the world to the fullness of the gospel and the love of the Father. And I make such a big deal of this, and I, and I make such a big deal about how this has historically unfolded, because it has always been the practice of the church to have a bishop that can speak into the life of the diocese and the congregation committed to his charge. And it has always been for the glorification of Jesus Christ and for the function of the church. But there's something beautiful in our submission and our unity. You see, we live in a very proclamational age, and many of us came to faith and into our callings to do proclamational things. We read the martyrs, and we wanted to be people that likewise were willing to die for our faith. Or maybe we went to the Billy Graham Crusades back in the day, and you're like, yep, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to lead thousands of people to Christ. But we forget that there is a beauty and simple obedience, because there is nothing simple about obedience. It is a very hard thing to do. Tessa and I were recently uh, out to eat with some dear friends of ours who has been a faithful minister for a very long time, and he talked about how everybody really loves submission until they're asked to do something that they don't want to do. And it was deep, but it's so simply true, isn't it? That is all of us. We are called to submit, and we like the idea of submission until it's difficult. But even in the small acts of submission, of putting on the right vestments, of letting your yes be yes and your no be no, these are profound opportunities for our lives to proclaim that Jesus Christ came from the Father and to express the love of the Father through simple things. When I was first coming to chaplaincy, uh, Archdeacon Kayang Yang said something that has stuck with me and I found very true in chaplaincy. I was, I was chomping at the bit to go into ministry, and I said, you know, I just want to go out there and do some real deep things and, and deal with people in existential crisis. And he said, you know, Ryan, if you're not happy or if you can't find fulfillment in the small things, the great things aren't going to matter either. And that we can make an idol out of identity and purpose and meaning however well-intentioned it is. And coming into chaplaincy, I saw how true that is. And I've been very, very thankful uh, for many years for those words. We are called to be faithful with both little and much. And when we uphold our ordination vows, and when we uphold the direction that we get from our bishop, we're not only being faithful with both little and much, but we are proclaiming that Christ comes to the Father. So this gets us to upholding our ordination vows and how we know what our ordination vows are. We have really two or three sources for our ordination vows. We have the prayer book and the ordinal, but within the service for ordination, we have the oaths of conformity and the oaths of submission, and we swear that we have signed them and we will uphold them. So therefore, our oath of conformity and our oath of submission are part of our ordination vows, and it would behoove us to therefore know all of these things. So in the examination of the deacon, this is found in page 478 through 479 of your Book of Common Prayer 2019. Um, 
I'm summarizing them. If you disagree with my summary, please tell me later and, and we could talk about it. But these are my summaries of some of the, the, the vows that we take or the things that we say that we will do, the Lord being our helper. That will take this charge gladly. You'll notice that key word gladly there because we're not taking this charge in some sort of like Irish sense of duty where I'm, I'm staying committed to this marriage for 40 years even though I'm angry and we hate each other, which commitment to marriage is a wonderful thing, but that's not how we approach holy orders. We do so gladly. We say that we will serve God, we will promote his glory, and we will edify his people. You notice we don't say we will serve ourselves, we will promote our glory on social media or through various things, although I will let Ken and Zach get into that, and we will edify ourselves among the people, but we will humble ourselves. Um, Count Zinzendorf once talked about preaching the gospel, dying, and being forgotten, that's what he wanted for our life. And I think that kind of summarizes this statement. It's all about serving God, his glory, and his people. We are called by the will of Christ in accordance with the canons of this church. Now, there is certainly a sense of personal call we have to feel before we go into holy orders. But you'll notice this isn't just the wild west of Jesus has called me. This is what I'm going to do. He's told me to do this. But rather, it is according to the canons of the church that we are called. We say that we believe Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation, that we will diligently read the Scriptures to the congregation when appointed, that we'll fashion our life after Christ as a witness to the church, and here's, here's the big one right here, that we will reverently obey our bishop and those who, in accordance with the canons of this church, have authority over us with a glad mind, goodwill, and submitting to their godly judgments. To reverently obey means to show deep respect for our bishop, how we talk about him, how we talk to them. That is reverent obedience. And that when we do these things, we will do so with a glad mind and a good will, meaning we will do so once again joyfully, because this all points back to that unity piece. It is not a burden in, an, in, a, in a negative obligation to submit ourselves to godly judgment, but it is a joyous thing because in doing so, we proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The examination of a priest, uh, page 490 through 492, and if it is not your practice currently, especially for those coming in to us, I would encourage you, every month, go through these ordination vows, read them, reflect on them, let them shape you. Again, the question of calling according to the canons comes forward. We see once again that Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation and that we may not teach anything that may, may not be proven therein. We don't get to come up with new teachings and the latest and the greatest. We preach the historic teachings of the church that have been laid down to us. We are to minister the doctrine, the sacraments, the discipline of Christ as the Lord has commanded and as this church has received them. And I think for many of us, this becomes the thing that is difficult because we are drawn towards Anglicanism for various reasons, but we miss some of the old things sometimes. And we wonder what it would be like if we kind of crossed the two streams, so to speak, right? We say, well, like maybe we could use this liturgy and maybe we can take another part from a different liturgy. Or maybe we can try this new thing. But once again, this is not what we are called to do. We are called to minister the doctrine, sacraments, and discipline of Christ as the Lord has commanded them biblically and as this church has received them. And it is a beauty and it is a joyful thing to submit to that authority. 
We are tasked to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines. Once again, we should always be wary about new teachings. Uh, anytime someone says, I have a new teaching, I'm always immediately concerned by that. Um, I, I think that should be a good posture for any of us. We, we say that we will study Scripture and lay aside the distractions of this world, and, and that is a very difficult thing to do in this day and age. Um, and frankly, it's something that many of us need to do far better at as a witness of the church. We're to set forth a quiet, peaceful, and loving life. Again, something very difficult right now. And again, the statement about reverent obedience takes place. For those of us who are priests, we have made a statement about reverent obedience and about glad and good intentions when we do it twice, just in the prayer book alone. But it does not end there, because like I said, we have to talk about our oaths of conformity and the oaths of canonical obedience, also known as the oath of submission. So this should not look like anything new unless you have yet to be ordained. Um, at some point, you will see this form. Um, the only difference for some of us is the Church of Nigeria is no longer on here. But we say, I would now to be ordained to affirm and accordingly declare my belief and the truth which is revealed and the Holy Scriptures and set forth in the Catholic creeds and to which the historic formularies of the Anglican Communion and jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy bear witness. And so with clear conscience and without pretense to deceive, I give my oath that I believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. And, and I've bolded this again because we saw this earlier. I consequently hold myself bound to conform my life and ministry thereto. And therefore, I do solemnly engage to conform to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received them. And if this is something that is not in your vocabulary, I would strongly encourage you to add that statement, doctrine, doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received them into your vocabulary. Because when you're left asking questions, hey, should I do this? Can I do this? Would this be a good idea? If you remember this statement, it's always going to lead you in the right direction. Because you're going to say, hey, maybe I should kind of see what the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ as this church has received them have to say about the issue. We also talk about the oath of submission or the oath of canonical obedience. And here I, the undersigned, do declare that I consent to be bound by the constitutions, canons, regulations, and Episcopal policies of the jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy and the Anglican Church in North America, which have been made or which may hereafter be made in convocation, council, or assembly, or may otherwise have lawful effect in this jurisdiction and any region there. Of. And I highlighted the constitutions, canons, and regulations, and Episcopal policies because that means that we have to be familiar with these things. There are a few of them, and some of it is legalese, but we cannot uphold our ordination vows if we do not know the marching orders of our leadership. We have to know our canons. We have to know our constitutions. We have to know the regulations and Episcopal policies. And here's the thing. More may get added, as this statement says. And so some of us are on board up to this point, and we say, okay, everything that has been taught by the church so far and everything here is good, but what happens at this convocation or if in the future something new is added and I don't like it? Well, then I'm just not going to follow it. That is not the appropriate Anglican response. We have three options. We can say, you know what? I don't agree with this, but it's not an issue of salvation, 
and I to be in unity with the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ will submit to it and just go along with it. Or if we do have a theological problem with it and we feel like it is asking too much of us, we have the responsibility to go to our bishops and share our hearts and share our vulnerabilities and what we are struggling with and talk to them about it. And it has been my experience that so long as these things are consistent with Anglicanism and with Scripture, that they are very, very generous and will make exceptions time and time again for people when the people just talk to them. The issue is we must talk to them. The third option, if we don't like any of those two, is we may resign our holy orders after talking to Bishop. We don't have the option after convocation to sit around in the back and badmouth the decisions that have been made. We don't have the, the, the option to simply sit there and do what we would like regardless. Because we are called to be in supernatural unity as Christ is in unity. And through our unity, the lost world will know that Jesus Christ comes from the Father. Our unity is more important than our sense of what we want to do. It continues, and I hereby undertake to accept and immediately submit to any sentence, depriving me of any or all rights and emoluments appertaining to the ordained office which may at any time be passed upon me after due examination by the bishop or other due authority acting under the regulations which have effect in this jurisdiction or any region thereof. I agree to exercise the ordained office so long as may be required of me by proper ecclesiastical authority, so help me God. So these are the two documents that both of us sign. And you'll see here that, that I have bolded again for, for point that we accept and immediately submit to any sentence depriving us of all of our rights. And in the midst of that, that never feels good. I, I will tell you um, that we have kind and gracious bishops that should we but listen to them and their admonitions, they will show kindness and love and grace and mercy to us, and they will seek to restore us. They will seek to bring us to a good place time and time again. But it's never comfortable to admit that, that we have wronged. And sometimes maybe we're not always in the wrong. Maybe sometimes we did things in good intent. We felt the Lord leading us in a direction. But all of us are still called through Scripture to examine our hearts and to see where we might have sinned. And so even if we are in that place, it would still behoove us to listen to our bishop's guidance, to get a different perspective. Because once again, it's not about my right, it's not about their right, it's about the unity of the church and the expression of the gospel to the lost world through our actions. And the so long as may be required of me, um, there are some of us who might have thought we were going to retire at a certain time, or maybe we thought we were going to collect seashells on the beach in Florida, and the bishop has said, nope, this is what I want you to do, and he has the right to do that, um, but he will always do so for good reason. All right, what drew you to Anglicanism? All of you all have had some time to think about this, and, and I think if I were to do a, a poll of hands, which I'm not going to do, um, I think this list would maintain the numbers. I, I would hope the other would actually go down, um, but, but the authority and the liturgy and the theology are all going to be there still because we knew what drew us to Anglicanism? We knew about the brotherhood and, and the fraternity that we wanted. We knew about the camaraderie. We knew we wanted to be under obedience. We wanted to be a part of something that was deep and rooted. 
for the glory of God. Because we've looked at the world around us through our various ministries in the past, and we saw that we were just microwaving and reheating the same stuff and packaging it as the gospel when it indeed was not. We were doing all the things that the world said would work, and we were perplexed when they weren't coming to hear the gospel. When our congregants were struggling with the same exact issues of the world, and as we look around us and see the brokenness and the depravity and the hopelessness, it is only the historic church that offers any hope to the world because the historic church is the church of Jesus Christ, and it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers any hope to this world. Outside of that, there is nothing. We are called to be a people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as historically handed down through the church. So what is the heart of our ordination vows? It's unity, it's humility, and it's submission. As we talked about the perfect unity of God the Father and God the Son, and as I prepared for this, I was reminded of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ says, if you will, let Father take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We need to be a people that are far more willing to say, not my will, but yours be done in all things. Scripture tells us that a servant is not greater than his master. If our Lord and Savior set a biblical precedence and example, we are not greater than him, and we must submit. I want to end by reminding you of the joyful privilege of submission, though. There are often times within people's life that I don't have the right words to say, and no biblical trivia or sort of pop knowledge or, or wise saying is going to fix the issue of their life, especially if they don't know Christ and if they're struggling in shame and guilt and hopelessness. But what I do know is that there is power even in those moments of simply submitting and being a unified people who joyfully proclaim Christ through our unity. And often, as many of us chaplains have experienced, it's not when we've said the most profound things we think we've ever said that we lead people to the truth of Christ. It's when they see our Christ-like character and our love for God's people and his church. In all things that we do, let us be servants like Christ was a servant. And let us be in unity and humility and submission to the church and to our leadership. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received and keep Anglicanism classic.